Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 211, uh, and we are returning to the poem which we began last time. And having established much of the framework of that poem, uh, we will be uh, ready to leap forward uh, and discuss... <clears throat> the next one, maybe two stanzas uh, of that poem. So that'll be pretty exciting. Um, a couple, speaking of exciting, I have a couple of exciting announcements tonight before I begin. First off is that registration for Mythmoot is open. Mythmoot 9 will be happening this year in the last weekend of June, as is our want. Um, and down in uh, Leesburg, Virginia, again, as has also been our want for several years now. Um, so if you go to signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot, you should be able to see all the information on Mythmoot 9 this year. Uh, it's going to be great fun, as always. Uh, so, yeah, it, it it really doesn't seem possible that it's been nine years. It's actually been a little bit more than that, because I think we had one year that we skipped in the middle between Mythmoot 3 and Mythmoot 4. But, um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's uh, it's been... It's been a lot of Mythmoots so far, so that's pretty exciting. So yeah, so Mythmoot 9 is open, and you will notice there's the page uh, uh, there in uh, both on uh, Discord and Twitch, I see. And uh, those of you who are uh, regular attendees may notice a pleasant surprise when you click on there, which is that we've been able to drop our rates this year, which I was really excited about. So uh, it is actually more affordable to attend Mythmoot than it's been in many years. Um, so uh, that, uh, that'll that be pretty cool. So yeah, check that out. Um, uh, remaking Myth is the theme of Mythmoot this year. So um, again, I, uh, I will trust you to that page. We have early bird pricing uh, there. Um, and also one other thing I wanted to clarify for those of you who were attending, we're going to do, be doing it hybrid again this year, as we did last year. Even better than we did last year. And um, we... Uh, um, one thing that I wanted to point out about that is we had, last year we had two sort of levels of remote attendance. We had uh, one which just enabled you to go to the presentations and to get the archive of the presentations of like, you know, the paper presentations and stuff. And the other, which was like, you know, full social access as much as we could get full social access uh, on the hybrid level. Um, and uh, the latter was higher. Uh, it, it cost more than the other one. Um, I we were able to reduce the price of Moot Hub, which was the higher level, the all-inclusive level, um, down to the same price that the like lower-priced one used to be. So we just canned the lower-priced one, and um, so now you get uh, you get you get Moot Hub for the old Mootcast price, basically. So anyway, there we go. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Trifle says with that theme, I'm going to have to finally write that paper on fan fiction, aren't I? You totally should. Yes, exactly. Especially since, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, after all, we've been talking about a piece of fan fiction for some time. The Lord of the Rings is kind of, uh, you know, Tolkien wrote a lot of fan fiction, basically. Um, uh, you know, fan fiction of, you know, like uh, the whole Tour and Turambar story began as Kalevala fan fiction basically, you know, him just like doing his own version of the Kularo story. And uh, I mean, like that kind of 
the kind of interaction with existing creative works, um, which we call fan fiction. They used to <laughs> call literature <laughs> like uh, the Canterbury Tales or you know, uh, uh, lots and lots of things. <laughs> but anyway, Sigurd and Gudrun, absolutely. That's pure Old Norse fan fiction. Uh, two Jews men, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but um, anyhow, um, oh, and exactly, all of Shakespeare is fanfic. Uh, completely, completely, almost all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Aeneid, 100%. The Aeneid is uh, possibly the like highest ranking piece of fan fiction ever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Complete Homer fanfic right there. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah. So no, I think, I think that'd be, that'd be cool. Trifle. You should totally write that paper. Um, anyway, so that is one announcement that myth moot registration is open. The second announcement is so exciting. I have a slide for it because we are in our first, um, we are in our first month right now. Our space modules are up and running, our new space program. So December is our first round of modules. We're uh, offering, we're, we're running five modules this December. Um, and so we have, uh, uh, it's, and they're, th- this is week two of our, uh, of our December modules. And they've been awesome. Uh, we've had a, we have a wonderful group. We've got about 45 people uh, who are uh, taking our classes here for the first time. Um, great participation, wonderful discussions and everything um so anyway that's what's happening but since that's now under safely underway we now have uh to announce the modules that were running in january so we had such response for our december modules that in january we're having to run seven of them in order to accommodate the interest of our students so these are the seven modules that are officially running in january we have uh one advanced old english readings class in which they're going to be reading the old english boethius together so if you've studied old english before and you want to keep your hand in you want some practice hey boethius right i mean there you go read boethius in the anglo-saxon translation how cool is that and then we have our creative writing workshop we'll be continuing so there's a whole bunch of people who are taking the creative uh, writing workshop this semester and uh, they'll have the opportunity to continue. Uh, new folks can, of course, join in at any time. That'll be awesome. We have two of our fantasy modules uh, running. We have one on Miyazaki's anime. Uh, the Recovery of Innocence is the theme uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the module. So we'll be looking at uh, uh, several of Miyazaki's films, his anime films. And then we have a module on Tolkien's Ents and the Environment. Uh, so, uh, I get that sh- should be a really fun theme to be looking at Tolkien's Ents and their connection to environmentalism. And then we have three beginning language classes. Uh, we have the first module of our Latin in a Year sequence. So we have uh, a plan, basically 12 modules to get you from zero to prepared to translate that most famous work of fan fiction of all time, <laughs> the Aeneid. Not that necessarily that's the next step, but like you totally could at that point, if you wanted to. Uh, and uh, Old English one. So if you want to be one of those people who has Old English uh, and is able to read, uh, you know, one of those many texts that, uh, you know, Tolkien was doing his uh, critical and fanfic work on uh, during the course of The Lord of the Rings and other places, um, 
uh, you can start studying Old English uh, as well in January. And we're finally, we're also doing a module on Tolkien's invented languages. Uh, and this one is really cool. So, the, I mean, they're all really cool. But the way that the Tolkien invented, Tolkien's invented languages module is going to approach this, rather than just kind of doing like an academic study of, you know, like, you know, Quenya step one or something like that. Um, instead, the, what, what, this module is going to do is it's going to go through the Lord. It's going to focus on the Lord of the Rings and through the Lord of the Rings, through names and, uh, and references and other things, it's going to basically sort of help you through the Lord of the Rings, build up a familiarity with how Tolkien's invented languages work. It's like, what do we learn about Tolkien's invented languages? How much of his languages can we learn just by looking at what's presented in the Lord of the Rings? And of course we know that how much Tolkien not only, thought about his languages, but how much he loved them, right? And how much he, how interested he was in helping and encouraging people to do exactly that, to pick up on the, you know, hoping that they would pick up on the languages and, uh, and kind of learn them and stuff. That's why he included what he did in the appendices, right? Uh, so anyway, so this module is going to be doing that. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. So if you've ever wanted to kind of take the first steps towards beginning to understand uh, some of Tolkien's invented language stuff a little more closely, this is a wonderful beginning module for that. And there will be some follow-ups from that uh, uh, down the road as well. Um, so anyway... Those are the modules that are definitely running in January. Um, we also have, and I'll talk maybe next week or next time about our um, our candidate list, um, because there's uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of. So if you go to the page, you'll also see all the ones that were that are going to be available that we're offering uh, for February as well. So everybody who purchases a space token can then help us choose you know, based on what you select and what you tell us you're interested in, that's how we choose which modules run and which modules don't. So these are the ones that the people demanded. And so these are the ones that we are offering. So um, anyway, I, I encourage you to join us. Space has been so much fun. And there have been, uh, as I say, it's a very, very enthus enthusiastic initial crew uh, and uh, still lots of lots of room for more. So encourage you definitely to look into that. If you want to get into space, the first step, just buy one or more tokens um, and then you can you'll be involved in the selection and uh, choosing process. And uh, you or you can just go ahead and register for one of these for January right away. Um, tokens never expire. You can give them away uh, to, you know, you can go in with friends, buy a bunch at a lower price and give them away to those friends. Right. You know, so you guys can go in together on these totally um, not um, uh, not that hard to do. So uh, anyway, there we are. So <laughs> anyway, um, let me um, uh, let me move on to the text now. I could talk about our space program for a while because I'm really excited about that. But I uh, wanted to share with you what's coming up in January. Um, all right. Let's get back to the poem. All right. So I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been. Stanza two. Of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. What do you notice there? As always, sound first, right? Sound first meaning second. So first basic question. 
What do you notice about the basic, but does the pattern change? The, the basic rhythmic pattern of the lines? <laughs> Nancy says she always wants that last line to be in wind upon my fur, because then it would rhyme better, at least for us Americans. Um, uh, okay, but rhythmic pattern first. First rhythm, then rhyme, then other sound patterns, then meaning and sense. Rhythm first. Of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. So to first point out the most obvious thing, Right. The most obvious thing is that the basic pattern of the lines is the same. Right. It's still that three, four, three, four, like the same number of beats. Right. Um, the, 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 the lines don't vary. The lines are the same length and the same pattern as they were in the first stanza. Right. So that's um, uh, that's one kind of assumes that that's going to be the case from stanza to stanza. But that's why it's always important to pay attention, um, because often if we're not careful, if you're not reading it, especially if you're not reading it aloud, you can miss when a poet varies from your expectations because poetry, that's one of the points of having meter and rhyme in poetry is that then by establishing a norm, by establishing a norm for sound, you can convey more by variation. If there is no norm established, right? Who was it? Robert Frost, I think, said that writing poetry without meter is like playing tennis without a net. Um, that is, if, the, if, there's no, if there's no structure, right? If there are no rules to the game, then you can't cheat, right? Or you can't win anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's like, it's one, of the, it's one of the things that poets often do is you establish a clear pattern and then it, when you break that pattern, you can create a very striking effect, far more striking than, like, that line would be if there were not that patterns. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so, yeah, okay. Seems the, the same general shape, right? The, definitely the same general shape. How about the rhyme? One thing that we noticed in the first stanza was how very remarkably regular it was the IMs were right the beat pattern bum 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 bum. Um, do we hear that the same way? Does is this as regular? Does it vary more? What do you hear on a like a, a sort of a word to word line to line basis rhythmically? Again, now not talking yet about uh, the consonants or the vowels or the rhyme, just rhythmically of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Okay, yeah, Blad, it does sound very regular still, right? I would point out, notice those last two lines, especially, right? With morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Notice there are only two words of more than one syllable in both of those lines combined, right? Morning and silver are the only multi-syllable words. Um, and 
the it's one of the ways in which the great regularity of the verse is achieved is small words. Notice those first two lines of the first stanza where we were first focusing in on how very rhythmic, um, how very regular is the rhythm in this poem. There's only one multisyllable word, right? It's all one syllable words except for beside in those first two lines, right? Um, if you want to do very regular I am's, words of one syllable are your friend uh, because um, English has a very natural iambic pattern um, all by itself. Like if you just speak English normally, um, you will tend in general to speak in an iambic way. Did you hear it when I said that? You will tend in general to, I mean, it's like the, the, the bounce of it. Now it's, but it's not regular. It's not as regular if you use longer words, right? But if you just use multisyllables, it, um, uh, if you just use single-syllable words, I mean, um, it will tend to fall into that pattern more often than not. Um, uh, but okay, so yes, there's a lot of regularity. Now, the first two lines are a little different. For one thing, we get a three-syllable word, which is only our second three-syllable word of the whole poem. Butterflies was our other one. We had one three-syllable word in stanza one. We get one three-syllable word in stanza two. Gossamer, right? Um, yes, of yellow leaves and gossamer. Um, now it is mouse that is still iambic. Um, yes, and gossamer, right? So it still works. Um, but mouse, I agree with you um, that it's not as strong. Like it doesn't, you don't feel that, that first line, especially, I think, has. Um, well, it's like another line that we've seen. Um, the iambic beats in that first line of yellow leaves and gossamer, that um, the iambic beats are less insistent. It still works. It still scans of yellow leaves and gossamer, like still a perfectly iambic tetrameter line when you scan it, like when you actually sit down and say, where do the stresses fall? Yeah perfectly iambic. But but I agree that doesn't sound as even as I sit beside the fire and think. Or with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Um, but there is another line that in the first stanza which is equally weak. Um... Yes, Christopher on the river, exactly. The meadow flowers line. Meadow flowers and butterflies. And I was emphasizing the flowers, right? And how, like, you have to do that in one syllable, which makes your mouth get big, right? Um, it's, um, uh, it, it works. It still scans, right? But I agree, in that first stanza, it's of meadow flowers and butterflies that is still iambic, but feels less iambic. And no surprise. Look at all the, look how few words there are in that line, right? We have two two-syllable words, a hyphenated two-word phrase, each word of which has two syllables, right? Meadow flowers. And then butterflies, the only three-syllable word in the whole stanza, right? So we've got, what, five total words um, 
uh, to divide our uh, uh, what is it eight syllables among um, and it's the same thing but not only that notice that the pattern is precisely the same of meadow flowers and butterflies of yellow leaves and gossamer like this you know the shape of it even when you pay attention to what the words mean is exactly the same thing notice it's a precisely parallel construction of a two-word phrase not hyphenated this time this time just an adjective noun pair right and it even rhymes meadow and yellow right it even ends with that same sound here i am breaking my own rules and paying attention to the rhyme again but just i can't help but notice that those that parallel construction really um really jumps out right um of yellow leaves and gossamer of meadow flowers and butterflies so it's not just um uh it's not just that there are there happen to be one three-syllable word in each stanza there is exactly one three-syllable word and it's in exactly the same place in an exactly parallel line not parallel in terms of its placement in the stanza right and that's important to notice because that's another structural thing what we're not seeing is exactly the same sound pattern repeated again in the second stanza right not at all um what we got in stanza three we're getting again uh, in line three right uh of stanza one we're getting again in line one of stanza two um yeah so you get um an interesting thing there and i think that we will see more about that pattern so that's an interesting thing to notice first and tells us some more about the bigger picture shape not just the shape within the stanza but the shape between and among stanzas right which we'll see borne out in other ways uh, as we continue but okay of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were feel that feel how the iams pick back up again again it's still iambic the first line still perfectly iambic but it doesn't feel as bouncy because of those prolonged words of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were feel it feel it kind of start to gallop along again when you get to that second line with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair um yeah yeah okay so i agree very regular but we have that one thing that we noticed that we didn't exactly stumble over it but it it kind of smooths out a little bit in exactly the same way that we saw it smooth out in that one other line in the first stanza now let's talk about rhyme uh and several of you were noticing now first let's address the uh 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 nancy's wind upon my fur right uh it is certainly true that in america in autumns that there were and wind upon my fur would rhyme much much better um but uh i doubt that in tolkien's spoken language were and fur would actually rhyme that closely Right. Um, uh, were is kind of an Americanism, I have to say. Um, so, if you open the vowels a little bit, 
right? Um, in autumns that there were, and wind upon my hair, it's closer, right? Um, it's closer. It's not exactly... Um, uh, right, uh, JJ says, it works if we read where, uh, as in, like in Werewolf. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I agree. I don't think that even in... Um, I don't think that even in England, were and hair are a perfect rhyme. Um, exactly, Flammiford, just exactly as you said. In an English accent, were and hair rhyme more closely than in an American accent, but not perfectly. I agree. I agree. Um, that's exactly what it sounds like to me, too. It's, it sounds much more striking uh, to Americans. Um, something more jarring, I think, to Americans. Um, but I think that it's important that it's still not a perfect rhyme. I'm not suggesting that he might actually have better said fur, uh, but what I would say, Tolkien is certainly a good enough poet to make a close rhyme there if he wanted to, especially since what did we notice about the rhyme pattern in stanza one? What do we notice about the rhyme pattern in stanza one? What was the rhyme pattern of stanza one? Yeah, it was blank A, blank A, right? There was just the one rhyme, right? Just the one rhyme. Um, right, the Sean Bean rhyme, exactly, Silk Westkit. Scene and Bean, right? Also, which does not work in America, right? Americans have a real problem with the rhyme scheme of this uh, whole poem so far. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, okay, so we have... Um, and we talked about how sort of crucial that was. We had a lot of sound resonances in that first stanza, right? We talked about the meadow flowers, right? With that not quite internal rhyme, but the way that those owls go, you know, make your mouth and lips go. Um, we talked about all the alliteration um, and the different kind of alliterative patterns that we were seeing in that first stanza. But there was, uh, but we talked about how he was not using internal rhyme, right? He was um, kind of hanging things on the that terminal rhyme, that one single terminal rhyme. And um, we get to the second stanza, and that one terminal rhyme is weak. And again, I, I believe when it comes to a poem that Tolkien has written, um, this isn't always safe to do. But in poetry, unless you have solid reason to suspect that the poet in question is a very sloppy poet indeed, which we do not have cause to suspect that about Tolkien. Um, unless you have good reason to believe that the poet is a very sloppy poet indeed, you should always assume that the choice is deliberate unless, okay, unless you can, you have evidence to the contrary, right? You can't always make that choice, that assumption about every word choice. Um, Tolkien was pretty careful about that kind of thing. Um, so when it comes to the Lord of the Rings, I kind of do usually sort of assume that his word choice is very deliberate, unless I have reason to think otherwise. Um, 
But in a poem, I am 100% making that assumption. Um, so, again, did he just attempt to make a rhyme and fail? No, he did not just attempt to make a rhyme and fail. This is one thing that Tolkien is really very good at. Um, uh, and yes, Matt, I think that's exactly right. Uh, as um, I, I think a, 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 you know, a couple of people were noticing before, we get another rhyme in this stanza with gossamer of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were. That is a perfect rhyme. Um, uh, both in America and in England, I believe. Uh, so, and exactly as Matt says, he telegraphs that the broken line is intentional by rhyming the word with, with, with by rhyming that word before. He doesn't remove the rhyme he shifts it. He shifts it. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't abandon the shape entirely. We, Our expectations were established by that first stanza. That's how stanzaic poetry works, right? Our expectations for the sound patterns of the second stanza are totally established by that first stanza. We, we're not safe to assume there is, everything's going to be exactly the same in the next stanza, but we have every reason to expect it and therefore to pay attention if it's different. Right. And here is a major difference, but it doesn't forget it. We still do have an almost rhyme in the place where we were expecting a close rhyme. Right. But we don't get the close rhyme that we expect. Instead, we get a slant rhyme there, right? A near rhyme, a not quite rhyme, an almost but not quite rhyme. But however, we get um, a close rhyme in lines one and two, which we did not see at all before. Right? We didn't get any internal rhymes before. Of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Okay. What else do we notice? What other... No, more sound patterns. Still just sound patterns now. What else do you notice about that stanza? Let's think about alliteration and how that works. He's alliterating his imagery, Fourth Dauntless says. Yes. Yes. He does. Um, not every single one, but the morning mist and silver sun, for sure, right? Those um, those really jump out at you, don't they? In fact, those really jump out at you much more than any alliterations from the first stanza jump out at you, right? We talked about, for instance, the S's in that first line. I sit beside. The S's there, that's pretty close, right? But the double pairing, those two phrases which are bound internally together by alliteration, morning mist and silver sun. Um, we do get the L's in leaves. Good. Yellow leaves. Sure. Sure. Um, the yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were. Um, yes. Yes. Um, even the that there, right? I mean, you know, those aren't it's not like 
a sensational alliteration because they're not, you know, they're not nouns or verbs. It's just, they're just like particles. So, um, but it, in the shape of this stanza kind of still counts, right? That there were with morning mist, silver sun, golly. Notice that. Look at that. We get one, two, three, four sets in nine consecutive words, eight of them alliterate with each other in four perfect two-word pairs. That there were with morning mist, silver sun. Right? And is the only word in that whole set that doesn't go. Um, that's really striking. We got, I mean, we were looking at this delicate sound patterns in that first stanza, right? Like we're talking about the B's and the S's and the F's, right? Uh, and how those all are kind of brought together in summers that have been right at the end of that uh, first stanza. Um, and that was all really cool stuff. But holy cow, it's poured on really heavily in this second stanza compared to that first stanza, right? I wonder why. Hmm, I think I can see why. Um, uh, I can, uh, I think I can see a pattern, but we have to look at the bigger picture uh, to see that. Blood the Aspire points out that even the and gets repeated. Yeah, we, we do get another and separated only by silver sun, right? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So that is fascinating. And uh, somebody, I forget who it was, um, was pointing out um, that the alliteration, especially in that third line of the stanza, really helps to sort of reemphasize th uh, the reassertion of the iambic pattern. Again, not that it ever went. They're all perfectly iambic. Um, but the, oh, the, the alliteration really stresses it with morning mist and silver sun, um, morning mist and silver sun, um, uh, every single beat, right? Every stressed syllable in that stanza is either an M or an S, right? With morning mist and silver sun, um, you don't get like more emphatically alliterative than that. The only way that that line could be more emphatically alliterative is if all four of them were the same letter, right? Um, it's um, it's pretty intense, and again, we get nothing like that intensity um, before the end. Now, Aspen Convalin, I completely agree with you. You are absolutely dead on about the shape of this, because what we're beginning to see here, I think, as Aspen has already been pointing out, is that we have two clues which tell us by stopping as we were cruelly compelled to stop due to time constraints at the end of last time by looking at the only the first stanza we got an ins, an incomplete picture of the overall sound shape of this poem right the first stanza doesn't stand alone it does establish the pattern right because it is stanzaic and so you you pause after the stanza and you're starting the next stanza and so you're um, again, your expectations are developed by that first stanza, but that doesn't mean that every stanza is an island on its own, right? And as Aspen was suggesting, um, there seems to be a relationship between, not just a paralleling of each other, not just a duplication 
of the same sound pattern, but an actual internal relationship between the sound pattern of stanza one and stanza two. And as I said, there are two primarily, there are two primary cues that we get um, uh, that tell us that that's the case. One is the one that uh, the the one and the more complicated one, the more difficult to spot one, is the one that Aspen was talking about before, and that's the placement of that yellow leaves and gossamer line. Once you notice it, right? Once you notice the parallel between of yellow leaves and gossamer and of meadow flowers and butterflies, which work almost exactly identically shaped lines. Um, not disrupting, because that's not correct. It does not disrupt the meter. Meter is unaltered. It um, affects the meter, affects the sound, affects the rhythm, um, uh, and it dampens it. Maybe that's the better way, but the better metaphor. It kind of dampens the iambics feel of that line in a very, very similar way to of meadow flowers and butterflies. Again, because the word shape is similar, um, and I have to, I have to say. Um, uh, uh, Aranas, your point about the L's in yellow leaves, right? Um, it was the vowels that made us kind of linger over meadow flowers. Um, you know, those oh, ow uh, sounds make you have to slow down when you say that phrase. It's the L's that make all those liquids in the middle of those verbs, in the middle of those that phrase, if you think of the, the two-word phrase together. Um, the the almost three L sounds like yellow leaves, right? Um, of yellow leaves and gossamer. Um, it's not that it's impossible to read it fast, but uh, you and especially confession, uh, I stutter and I stutter over liquids worse than anything else. Um, so I am liable actually literally to stumble over yellow leaves, though I don't stumble over. L's in the middle of words nearly so much as I do at the beginning of words. Um, the word lily is one of the hardest words in English for me to pronounce. Two L's with a short I in between kills me. Um, uh, my son had a good friend, Lily, and it was very, I was very self-conscious whenever I was addressing her because I was terrified I was going to stutter over her name. Um, but anyway... Uh, of yellow, le- of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were. So, as I was saying, as Aspen points out, what this suggests now, we have, we were noticing, by the way, right, remember last time, that the sound of the lines and the way, and the enjambment of the lines makes it sound to your ear almost as if we have two long lines rather than four short lines. Right, and they are four, and we talked about some of the ways in which that shape works in the first stanza. Um, the same thing holds true in the second stanza, right? Both lines one and two, and lines three and four of the second stanza are thoroughly enjambed, right? Of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, comma, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. You've got three items in a list, right? Morning mist, silver sun, wind upon my hair. Right, so you have those, uh, you know, both of those um, definitely, um, uh, both of those two line pairs in the second stanza similarly seem to be just one 
flowing thought so that once again it sounds to your ear almost like two seven-beat lines rather than four short lines, as your eyes tell you. Um, therefore, imagine for a second, right? So like, just listen to it, close your eyes, and, and sort of picture how it sounds, right, with those long lines. If you imagine this as one four-line stanza, right, I'll read it again. Imagine it as one four-line stanza with each line being 14 syllables, seven beats long, right? Line one, I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen. Two, of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. When you think about it that way, which again is how it sounds, right? Um, notice how it creates exactly as Aspen was pointing out. It's a, it, it hinges, right? It's symmetrical. It's a mirror image. It's not a repetition. It's not a duplication. It's a mirror image, right? What was long line two is long line one in the second stanza. Right, it becomes one single thing, and I said there were two pieces of evidence that suggest that the first two stanzas are related to each other this way. One is that pattern, right? That sad, that sound pattern, the duplication of that sound pattern. Um, what's the other one? The other one is uh, much simpler. Super, super simple. Aspen was noticing the complicated one. What's the obvious one? The obvious thing that tells us stanza one and two need to be read together in our one unit? Silkwest get exactly right. The period! It's one sentence! Exactly. They're a single long sentence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. The fact that there is a semicolon at the end of stanza one and a period at the end of stanza two tells us that we should read the first two stanzas together. And the period suggests that there is, uh, you know, when we come to stanza three, we're in a different unit, right? And we will have other reasons to observe that we're in a different unit when we get to stanza three. Um, Exactly, Anna, the indecisive. We should not have stopped at the end of last week. We should have kept talking about the poem until like one o'clock in the morning, just as Valori feared that we would. I'm just teasing Valori, but um, <laughs> she's still scarred by the day we did talk until like one thirty in the morning uh, when uh, we did the Baron and Luthien poem. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's total. I'm, 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 I'm reformed. I'm totally reformed. Um, uh, Okay, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, the Baron and Luthien poem and no field trip because we went so late. Exactly. That was it. That was the epic night in question. Uh, trifle. Um, anyhow, okay, so, um, so yes, that seems to me an important <clears throat> element here, the overall shape. And this gives us a clue of how we should read... Um, now that it's just about time to actually pay attention to what it's saying, in fact, um, it gives us a, it gives us, uh, we now have a, a kind of a key, right, to try to understand that. Um, or perhaps another way to say that, we have another 
thing to kind of test against, right? If we look, if we think about that bigger structure, the two stanza structure with that kind of pivot in the middle and the, the, the mirroring there between the second half of the first stanza and the first half of the second stanza, if we think about that um, as a structural element, does the overall sense fit that? Does it match that in some way? Um, well, what's he saying? Of course, we see that although the sound parallel we were noticing between line three of stanza one and line one of stanza two are very, very close, when we look at what it's actually talking about, we see, yeah, they're actually, those line pairs are even more closely bound together um, by their content, right? Um, line four, in summers that have been, line two, in autumns that there were, right? Now, the, the tense is different, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but again, the direct parallel, right? We've got summers on the one hand and autumns on the other hand, right? Um, but the structure and shape of those two line pairs is perfectly identical, right? Um, the sound structure, again, notice again, lines two and four, the or four and two, I guess I should say, uh, the syllables are once again exactly the same in summers, in autumns, that have been that there were, right? So, like, same, everything's the same, except replacing uh, autumns and some, but of course, notice what this does when you've got something that's that closely parallel, but of course it's not identical. Now it makes you pay special attention to the things that keep it from being an identical repetition, right? Just like if you see two mirror images that are that are exactly identical except for a few, like, tiny little details, it makes you pay much more attention to the tiny details that you would never have paid attention to otherwise, right? And so here we have summers and autumns, right, which suggests on the one hand that we're moving forward in time. I mean, that's sequential, right? Autumn following summer. Um, now, what, what about the tenses? What do we do about the, the tenses? Summers that have been. Remember, we talked about the present perfect there, right? Summers that have been and autumns that there were. What's the difference? <laughs> Looking behind, said he, uh, Silk Westcott, quoting Gandalf uh, at the end of chapter two of The Hobbit. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, both are oriented backwards, right? Um But what's the effect of shifting? Shifting from that have been to that there were. We talked about both have seen and have been, right? The two present perfect constructions that he uses in the first stanza, right? All that I have seen, summers that have been, right? Um, 
And Christopher on the River, you are completely correct. And Fourth Dauntless, I agree with that as well. Um, it places the autumn more firmly in the past, Fourth Dauntless says, and Christopher on the River says, their were seems more distant. You're absolutely right, it's more distant, right? That have been, remember the, perp the whole point of the present perfect tense, what the present perfect says, is that the action which is now complete and therefore past, right, it's done now, but it's only done as of right now, right? As of this moment, it is complete. The summers that have been is, it's the past, but it's like the immediate past. The past that was right up until I have just declared it in this moment, right? Whereas that there were, that there were could be 50 years ago, right? Um, that's very different from the, um, um, uh, that's very different from the, um, from the present perfect. Um, the autumns that there were, yeah, I agree. It's much more remote. It's, um, it's almost like things are receding as he's talking about them. If you see what I mean. Um, interesting. Bricktail's noticing a fascinating pattern there. We'll have to see if that holds true. Bricktails is saying that, of course, when Bilbo is singing this poem on the 25th of December is right after the winter solstice. So summer and autumn are in the past, but winter and spring are in the present or future. Um, that is fascinating. We'll see if that bears up as we go. The one way, Bricktails, in which that pattern wouldn't seem to connect with this particular point here um, is um, that um, uh, again, the autumn seems further away. Uh, so, you know, it's not like the summers that were back then and the autumn that just happened. It's almost, it's the other way around, right? The summers feel closer, right? Um, and it's the autumns that, because it's simple past, um, and not just simple past, right? Um, if he just said in autumns that were, it wouldn't scan then, I know. Um, if he just said, and it wouldn't alliterate either, so we'd lose a couple things by taking out there. Um, but the there is the effect that there has on the verb makes it sound, again, more distant. More distant because less personal. Autumns that there were. The autumns kind of happened, right? Summers that have been. The summers were, and we talked about that, right? You know, we're, um, uh, the being, the exist, the emphasis on the linking verb there in that first stanza, right? We get the emphasis on the linking verb again, but again, it's kind of, um, it's kind of distant, Right? autumns that there were. So we can gloss Bilbo's poem with winter is coming forth thoughtless. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, no, it's not, but it's not the real winter is coming poem. There is a winter is coming poem, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Which like winter is coming should absolutely be the subtitle of the poem. And of course I'm thinking about the Elvish song that Treebeard sings, the Antonent wife song, 
That's the winter is coming poem. That's the real winter is coming poem. But um, when winter first begins to bite is an anticipation of winter, but it's not exactly the real winter is coming uh, poem. But anyway, because uh, it's not about the advent of winter. It's uh, about how you don't want to go into the wild like they're going to do um, in the wintertime. But anyhow, um, okay. So we can see both the similarities and the differences there in autumns that there were, in summers that have been, in autumns that there were, thinking about the tenses there. Um, I would also point out that the difference between, although, um, again, another thing that you really notice because the parallel of the structure really kind of forces you to put them side by side. What do you notice about the imagery of meadow flowers and butterflies on the one hand, of yellow leaves and gossamer on the other hand? What's the difference between the things he's talking about? The summer things and the autumn things that are so closely paralleled to each other. What do you notice? See the pattern there? What does he associate with summers? Uh, and what does he associate with autumn. Yeah, Aspen, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, Josh the Left was saying the same thing. Um, alive, not alive. Meadow flowers, right? Things growing and blooming. Yellow leaves, leaves falling, right? Leaves dying. Butterflies. Um, you know, the little bugs flying around. Um, and gossamer. What do you think is the gossamer he's describing exactly? I, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, it's just what Emily's asking. What does he mean by gossamer? It's possible that it's spider webs. Yeah. Yeah, spider webs, I think, are a strong candidate. <clears throat> um, it's also possible that he's imagining. Well. It could be a plant thing, couldn't it? But probably not in... Probably not in autumn. Dandelion fluff. That's the kind of thing that I was thinking of, Bard. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, spider webs would show up well in a morning mist. Yeah, that would be very noticeable, especially on the way out of Buckland. Um... Christopher points out that uh, milkweed, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing, Sarah, that I realized that I was picturing when I was um, uh, thinking about that. But you're right. You're right. I think um, very likely it is spider webs. Um, and that would maintain the perfect parallel. Um, uh, who was it who was so eloquently identifying the... Um, uh, the parallel. Oh yeah, bricktails. Plant bug, plant bug. Right? That's the pattern. Indeed, that's the pattern. Plant bug, plant bug. Um, and uh, yeah, and of course, as Matt points out, spider webs presumably designed at least in part to capture the butterflies. Right? So we have uh, the the yellow leaves are the uh, the end point of what you know. We have uh, um, who is it? Winter's Tale. Was it Perdita? I forget. 
I came upon things dying and things being born. No, Pordita was the thing being born, so she couldn't have said it. Um, but um, yeah, things, things, things born and things dying. Um, that's what we see, right? Meadow flowers, right? Blooming, leaves falling, butterflies soaring up, gossamer catching the butterflies. Now, I'm not saying that gossamer is necessarily a, a word that evokes death and uh, uh, mortality exactly. Um, but, um, and Bart, it is a very, unusual, it is a very, very gentle evocation of spiders uh, to evoke beauty instead of dread. Um, the One of the other examples that I can think of, Bard, is similarly um, the that um, autumnal autumn mist upon the spider webs that we saw in Buckland on their way to the old forest when they're headed out, uh, you know, Frodo and the conspirators heading out to the gate into the old forest and they pass the bushes with the, uh, the spider webs on, as we noticed before. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. And I certainly agree that spider webs in the morning mist are beautiful. Um, and bright, because, of course, as you guys are pointing out, we get morning mist later on in the stanza, which is the more reason to believe that the gossamer in question is the spider webs, which are going to be glistening uh, with the morning mist. Um, absolutely. Oops. Um, yes. Um, and yes, and of course, the old forest, as several have pointed out as well, um, butterflies and spider webs have been directly connected in Bilbo's own experience, right? Um, in the tops of the trees in Mirkwood, uh, seeing both the, uh, the black monarchs, right? The black butterflies that he saw up there and the spider webs of small spiders that were there to catch the butterflies. Um, so... Yeah, so we have butterflies which are alive and spider webs which are, of course, not only themselves not alive, but also howsoever beautiful in the morning mist are um, also instruments of death and instruments of death for the butterflies, which is, which is, it's like, again, this is not dread. This is, these are not evil, wicked, giant spiders. Um, the spiders in the tops of the trees in Mirkwood, Emily, as you pointed out, aren't evil and scary either. Um, this is just the cycle of life, just like the flowers blooming and the leaves falling. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing sinister about any of that, right? It's just the cycle of life and the cycle of the year, and that's um, what we see in these two mirrored lines, right? Which sound so close or so very close. And I, man, I never noticed that in my life. Like every time I look at these lines, I'm seeing more and more parallels. Like the the closeness of those two lines is staggering, actually. Um, the one other difference, and it's the major difference we already have observed, is the internal rhyme. There's no internal rhyme in lines three and four, and there's a major internal rhyme in lines one and two of the next stanza. Um, and that's really interesting, right? Um, and let's think about that in the context of... Um, let's think about that in the context of the... Um, the overall shape and where we're going after this. 
with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. What's, um, what's different there? Oh, Nancy, yeah. When has anyone seen a silver sun? I have, I think, not exact, not literally silver. Um, but what's the point of silver sun? Why say silver sun? Um, through the morning mist, Fourth Dauntless, exactly. And I would especially say through the morning mist, um, not only when it's cloudy and overcast and behind the clouds, um, but also when it's cold. Yeah, the winter sun. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I agree it's talking about the quality of the sunlight. I think that we're, we're talking about a, the sun giving a cold light, right? Um, in the morning, through the mist, when it's cold outside, right? Uh, and the sun doesn't, it gives light, but it doesn't give any warmth at all, right? It doesn't seem to be giving, uh, uh, doesn't seem to be giving uh, warmth. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, again, it's, it's not, it's not literally silver, right? Although again, when it's coming through the clouds and it's coming through, um, uh, the mist, the, you know, the light is more white than yellow at that point. Um, anyway, but I, I do think that that's what he's invoking there, but okay. But back to these last two lines. What is he talking about? We've said this as one sentence. Let's go back to the beginning of the sentence. Good. Blad the Inspirer has an excellent question here. Speaking of that, how many things are upon his hair? Is it just the wind, or is the morning mist and silver sun also upon his hair? Um, yes, I agree. That's, that's my question. Okay, so let's go back and let's see if we can understand the sentence as a whole. I sit beside the fire. Remember, that's the subject and verb, right? I sit and think. We already did that. That's the whole, for the whole, remember, that's the, still the subject and verb, because we're still one sentence, right? So the main subject and verb of the entire first two stanzas are, I sit and think. I sit and think of colon, rest of the first two stanzas, right? So this is what he is sitting and thinking of. But the of is important because we have, it because of the parallels, or the parallel structure of the sentence that is established by that of. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer in autumns that there were. So we get the three parallel of phrases, long of phrases, right? Um, especially those last very carefully, um, very carefully paralleled to, right? Um, but then we get with, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. With? What does with modify? I think, I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers, of yellow leaves, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair? He thinks with those things? So, wait, hang on, I'm confused. 
Yeah, Bricktails, that's what I'm confused about. I'm thinking with the wind? I'm thinking with the sun on my hair? Is he thinking of... Because he's not thinking of the sun upon... Of the wind upon his hair and sun and mist and stuff, right? Those are not enough causes. Or phrases, technically. Right? Those aren't enough phrases. He's not thinking of morning mist and silver sun. He's thinking with morning mist and silver sun. Or maybe it's not he's thinking with them. Maybe... The autumns were with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon his hair. He could be sitting with, it's possible. But I agree, we were all assuming that the morning mist and silver sun was associated with autumn. Right? Picturing that that cold autumnal early morning sun coming through the mist. Picturing the, the morning mist on the gossamer. Right? Shining on the gossamer. Um, yeah, JJ, it would be possible to read it um, as I sit and think like, this is like the condition I am in while thinking of those other things. Right? But I don't think so. I don't think so. I think I think it's the autumns. I think that that last phrase is stretching out the autumns. The autumns get a kind of coda there, if you see what I mean. Summer gets the one pair of lines of meadow flowers and butterflies and summers that have been. Autumn gets what sounds like precisely equal treatment, right? It gets, uh, it gets equal time of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were. But then it gets a bonus, a whole nother set. We get twice as long, we spend twice as long on the autumn as we spent on the summer. With morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. So interestingly, the tense makes the autumns more distant, feel more distant than the summer. The summer is more present, right? It's still past, it's still over, but, it, but it's just now over, right? Whereas the autumns are more distant, autumns that there were, and yet, it seems more present to his memory. His memory lingers on the autumns more, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Notice the other thing. Um, we were talking about the role of him, himself, right? It starts off, and that's where we were talking about summers that have been, like the existence of the summers. He's not thinking about stuff that he did in the summertime. He thinks of all that I have seen, but then what he goes on to say is stuff that he's seen, but he's not in the picture. Like it's a point of view, right? Um, it's like a first person, first person meadow flower observer, right? That would be a, a really gripping video game. Um, but it's, right, right, I mean, it's like you're you're not seeing him in the frame, you're just seeing what he sees, the meadow flowers and butterflies. But notice that he gets back into the frame in those last two lines, right? He's now remembering not only the morning mist and the silver sun, 
and the yellow leaves in Gossamer. He's also remembering the wind upon his hair, right? He is once again um, sort of uh, placed himself in it, right? Him as viewer, him as participant in the scene has returned here. And I agree with you, he's still not remembering things that he did. It's something that happened to him. So I agree. It's not like he's now suddenly made himself the hero, right, of action or something like that. Not at all. Not at all. Um, He's still, as far as we can see, a purely passive observer of this thing. But he is there again. As he did not place himself at any point in the summer scene, other than just framing it that he had seen it. Right. Which, again, is equally true because of the direct parallel structure, um, the very, very parallel structure of those two lines. It's equally true, him seeing, that is, the summer and the winter. Um, But remember what we were saying before about the structure of the stanzas. Um, The mirror image, right? He did frame Summertime by himself, right? And I'm not even counting the very first line. I sit beside the fire and think. That's the subject, right? That tells us what he's doing. Um, but of all that I have seen is the frame that I'm thinking. So that the, the, the kind of the parallel, the, the not the parallel, the, um, the symmetrical line, right, would be in Wind Upon My Hair. He returns. I have seen. He's there. Wind upon my hair. He's there again. Right? At the beginning and at the end of the summer and autumnal imagery. Right? So that fits the symmetrical shape that we're seeing. Um, And in both cases, JJ, as you were pointing out, he is passive amidst it. Yes. Um... Yeah. Um, now I agree, Kokovutin Minor, that we do also get a movement from what he has seen to what he has felt there at the end, right? So it's not exactly the same. Um, and I wonder, is that too... Maybe, Kokovutin Minor, if we put that together with sort of the other thing here. Um, that is the other thing. The other thing that makes... The other thing that kind of disrupts the perfect um, symmetry of these two stanzas, right? Is that in place of the framing sentence that we get at the beginning of the first stanza, we get an extra autumnal imagery, right? Again, autumn gets extra treatment, right? It gets a double helping, not quite a double helping, a helping and a half, right? Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we get a sesquipedalian treatment of autumn. That's the word I was looking for. Um, yes, time and a half. Um, so we linger longer, <laughs> which is a fun phrase to say. We linger longer on autumn than we did on summer. 
And we also shift, as you were suggesting, Cook, from visual to tactile there, with his participation there in the end. Does that make it, though, more distant? Does that counterbalance the increased distance of the tense? That we get the more kind of immediate sense experience of, um, of, of feel here? Um, yeah, I wonder. Let's peek ahead. Oh, no, not quite done. The one last thing I wanted to say. Um, when Once we notice the symmetrical shape of these two stanzas, it also helps us to understand the patterns that work, the other sound patterns that we were observing. Um, the alliteration, the shift in sound pattern, the shift to super... In- what is super insistent? When does the... When does the... Um, the alliteration get, like, not out of control, because it's still perfectly under control, um, but when does it get so much more insistent? <laughs> Autumn is when it gets more insistent, Arnas, so you're, you're correct about that. Um, but in the coda, right? Um, starts at the very tail end of those parallel line pairs, right? Morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Um... the internal rhyme of Gossamer and that there were. There's a rhyming pair provides a kind of closure, if you see what I mean. Um, Some of that is Shakespeare's fault. Not all of it, but some of it is Shakespeare's fault. Um, The use of a rhyming couplet to end scenes, right? Um, the use of the rhyming couplet to end sonnets in his sonnet that was also not typical sonnet shape until Shakespeare. Um, the the uh, the way that Shakespeare turned the sonnet into to have that rhyming couplet be an ending mechanism, um, uh, and as well as using it at the end of scenes. Like I said, Shakespeare, uh, I think, is the one primarily responsible for the fact that rhyming couplets feel like they give closure uh, in English poetry now. Um, and yeah, Cook of Wooten Minor, I agree. It's kind of Shakespeare's fault. It's something we could say a lot in, Tol- uh, in Tolkien studies. You're, you're, you're right. Uh, indeed, it's kind of Shakespeare's fault. It's something we can say a lot in studying any work of English literature, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, when in doubt, blame Shakespeare is a pretty good rule, JJ. I, 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 I agree. I agree. Um, but um, I, anyway... The couplet there, Gossamer and that there were, the internal rhyme. Um, it does, as, um, as Matt said earlier, the introduction of the internal rhyme there telegraphs the fact that the slant rhyme in lines two and four of stanza two is deliberate, right? <clears throat> That's not supposed to be where the binding is, where the closure is. Those last two lines of the last stanza do not hold directly together with lines one and two. One and two are directly paired with the last two lines, and then they close, right? And then we get the coda, 
right? So it suggests the overall shape, which fits exactly with what we see. Um, that shift from the two directly parallel phrases to that coda, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. Um, that autumnal, um, uh, that autumnal uh, coda that we get there um, at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, the other thing is the um, the alliteration there in those last two lines. Once you see both from taking the cue of that aberration in rhyme scheme and also looking at the syntactic structure and also looking at um, the flow of ideas as well, all of that tells us that those last two lines with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair is a, a wind-up, is, 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 is closure, right, of this first big idea, is this kind of coda, right? And that that should have a tighter internal structure of its own. He doesn't end it with a rhyme, right? Like we don't get an end rhyme couplet there. Um, sun and hair are nowhere close in any dialect uh, to rhyming with each other, right? Um, so he doesn't give us that kind of closure. Because um, if he did, it would just have just simply changed the rhyme scheme of the whole stanza, right? To an A-A-B-B uh, stanza, and he doesn't want to do that, right? But the morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair that we get, um, there's, a, there's a momentum, right? There's a momentum uh, of those last two lines uh, as we build up to it. Um, the alliteration, which was like latent almost in that first stanza, as we discussed, like these scattered, repeated sounds that get kind of repeated and brought together in that last line of the first stanza, uh, builds momentum until we get that there were with morning mist, silver sun, and wind upon my hair. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, Kukavut Miners asking, is alliteration like Tolkien used considered low poetry in mainstream poetry studies? Um, I don't see a lot of it in poetry outside of Tolkien, but the way he uses it is almost musical. Cook, it's because of the it's because of Old English. Um, Tolkien was extremely sensitive to alliteration because he was extremely sensitive, because alliteration is the primary sound tool used by the poetry that he knows and loves best. Um, so he was he had thought a very great deal about how alliteration worked and the force of alliteration and how it, the different ways in which it's used more strongly, more lightly. Um, it was just something that he lived with more than almost any other modern poet did. Um, so that's why you don't see it in a lot of other modern poetry, because it's kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to say gimmick, that's too cheap, but... Um, it's just not, it's not a primary idiom of modern poets. Um, uh, no, I'll go a step further. It's not a primary idiom of modern speakers and people at all. Our ears are not trained to it. 
um, if you accidentally make a really close rhyme, um, you know, like the whole, uh, uh, you know, oh, oh, I'm a poet and I didn't know it, right? Uh, kind of joke that you make when you accidentally say a sentence which has a perfect rhyme in it. Um, if you do that accidentally, it jumps out at you. You notice you feel almost embarrassed, like it sounded like people might think that it was contrived, right? That you were trying to say something witty and in verse. Um, our ears are trained to notice rhyme like that. But we often use alliteration and don't even notice it. Like we had, you have to alliterate. If you accidentally alliterate, um, uh, if you accidentally alliterate, you have to, um, uh, you have to do it a lot. Like you, you have to use like at least three or four words almost in a row that start with the same letter before it really jumps out at you. Right. Um, and, I do, and I just think that modern speakers are are just not that sensitive to it because it's not what we hear. Now, again, it's not to say that it's not used at all. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you, Aspen, that it is in many uh, uh, children's books. Um, I love it when alliteration is used that good. Um, I used to, oops, sorry, accidentally looked at the next stanzas. I used to almost refused to read children's books that scanned poorly. Um, there are some children's books that have wonderful rhythm. Um, they don't have to even have regular meter. They just have to have a good cadence. Um, but like a book that I couldn't read without stumbling over it, I would try to lose that one. Because um, I'm like, I don't want to infect my, you know, one-year-old with... Um, this horrible, clunky, arrhythmic English, um, you know, to get like the sound patterns of, uh, besides which, like, you know, if you have any kind of ear at all, children like it much better. I mean, uh, some of the books that I loved most, um, uh, some of the books that I loved most as a child were just the ones which I, I didn't even care what they were about. I just loved hearing them. Um, uh, some of them were like incantatory almost, uh, even if the subject was completely inane. Um, it didn't matter. But um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, yeah, Ambrosius, I agree. Ambrosius says, I'm a preschool teacher, so I've read hundreds of picture books that are that are poetry all through, and most of the time I can't stand them, however nice the pictures are, because the poetry is usually just so bad. Occasionally you'll get one where the poetry works. Yes, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, I... Um, uh, this is why, like, one of my favorite, but one of my kids' favorite books uh, growing up was um, uh, 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 the uh, Boom Chicka Boom, uh, the little caterpillar, the, boom, the, 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 the alphabet book, Boom Chicka Boom. Uh, oh, man, they used to love that book because, uh, I, I mean, uh, it's just like the rhythm is inescapable. Like, it's so cool. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, 
books like that. But I agree, it is exhausting to read 30 pages of bad poetry out loud. Ambrosia, sometimes I try to fix it. Uh, and I, my wife is much better at this than I am. Uh, but uh, Sandra Boynton, oh, Valora, you are so right. Um, I, I don't love everything about Sandra Boynton, but my goodness, Sandra Boynton's... Uh, uh, yeah, her her rhythm is 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 wonderful. I used to love reading Sandra Boynton books. Similarly, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, yeah, and of course, a lot of the classics. Um, I mean, obviously, Dr. Seuss. Uh, his rhythm is wonderful. Shel Silverstein, uh, yes, very much. Um, uh, and a lot of good children's prose is also really very good, like The Wind in the Willows, right? It is a beautiful book to read. Read it aloud. It is a beautiful book to read and a beautiful book to listen to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, or The Hobbit, absolutely. Okay, that was a lot of digression, but worth it. Um, let's do one very quick thing. Don't worry, Valor, I'm not going to go to 1.30. Um, and I know... Uh, for Thoughtless, if we do this poem at one stanza a week, we're going to be discussing it until February. But you know what? I keep saying, I, I, I got to leave it all on the table here, right? I'm never, I'm never, I'm going to, I might live to finish The Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to live to finish to do it twice, right? So, uh, uh, so anyway, um, let's just peek ahead and read the next two stanzas, right? And then for homework, Think about think about them in comparison to the first two stanzas, right? Um, are we? We'll definitely do. Oh, but hang on a second. We get a period. Oh, what's happening? Anyway, so we'll read them and we'll see what happens. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. Whoop. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Interesting. Interesting. One more time. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. Okay. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um... Lots of similarities, some really intriguing differences, aren't there? Oh, man, and then the next we begin with, I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago. Oh, the tenses. Oh, my goodness. And people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times that were before. I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Every stanza, three, four, five, and six, is each one sentence. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> oh, the tenses should be a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is fantastic. Okay, so much to talk about. Here's the bad news. Speaking, speaking of February, um, I am... Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 
I'm not going to be able to do class next week. Um, I thought I was going to be able to, um, but I'm not going to be able to because my uh, I have to go pick up my son. My son is coming home from college for Christmas, uh, and his flight comes in at right in the middle of class. So I'm going to have to be driving to Boston next week. I'll be home all next week, but not on Tuesday night during class time because uh, I'll be driving to and from Boston during that time. Um, and then the week after that, I'll be away. So it'll actually be a few weeks uh, before we can uh, return again. Can he just wait at the airport until the next morning? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, anyway, uh, so I apologize. We shan't uh, be able to. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have a mid-poem cliffhanger here uh, until... Um, uh, until good grief because after that's the holiday it's going to be january before we're able to have class again it'll be our uh our fifth anniversary class i think um uh it'll be our fifth anniversary class um yeah yeah so um um it'll be uh it'll be but but i still we did reach christmas by christmas we we didn't leave rivendell by christmas or come really very close to it we may we may leave uh we may leave uh rivendell by easter i think um but um yeah so i'm the first i think the, the first tuesday of january will be the next time we'll be able to have class after tonight um uh so yeah it'll be i think the day after tolkien's birthday the fourth um and that will be uh the the tolkien's birthday the third of january in 20 back in 2017 was the first day of the the first session we did of exploring the lord of the rings uh so the class will be five years old uh and that's the day we will get to discuss stanza three uh uh of um of this poem so i know fifth anniversary it's crazy isn't it but yeah, I'm pretty sure I've done my math properly. And 2017 to 2022 is uh, totally um, um, uh, is totally five years. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, the um, yeah, we're starting kindergarten this year. Exactly. Yeah, that uh, that baby who was born back in the first or second year is is is, is in preschool preschool now. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, exactly. We've we've gone from Bilbo's party to almost leaving Rivendell uh, in five short years. Uh, we've made spectacular progress. Um, and um, uh, oh, somebody else was something I was going to respond to here. Oh yeah, uh, Fourth Analyst. Um, when is the next Mythgard class starting? Not immediately. <laughs> We're still. We're here. Right here's my Nature of Middle Earth book. We're uh, we're 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 on page um, ish around 154 out of uh, 410 ish. So uh, we're less significantly less than halfway through uh, the Nature of Middle Earth, which we've been discussing since Bilbo's birthday. Um, I, I think uh, we're we're going to be talking about the Nature of Middle Earth until at least April. Um, is my prediction. Uh, I, I will get to do this class this week. I will be here on Wednesday night this week, or next week, rather. Um, so we'll have two more Nature of Middle-Earth classes, which I'm hoping to finish part one, by the way. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. These are... Um, uh, 
but yeah, I think it's going to be. I don't think we'll start Alice in Wonderland. So that's what we're doing next. Alice in Wonderland and uh, Through the Looking Glass is our next uh, is our next book. We're going to do both of them um, after we finish The Nature of Middle Earth, um, and that won't um, that won't start until May is my guess, but it's just a guess. We may perhaps not even go end up going that fast, um, but um, yeah. So uh, oh, there was another thing I was just going to say. Um, Oh, yeah. Um, Just a brief note. I'll have more to say about this in the new year. But you remember that I was talking before about how, like, we should totally actually start doing that thing where we make a, like, website wiki thing and start kind of collecting together our ideas and, uh, and, you know, publishing some stuff. Um, There's... I've been working on that. Progress is being made. Um, uh, uh, research is in progress. Uh, uh, we're, yeah, anyway, we're, we're definitely going to, um, uh, that's, progress is underway. So if you are interested in being involved, there'll be more opportunities and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the plans. And I have a, I have a, a, a volunteer who is going to be, uh, helping to coordinate uh, this whole thing. Uh, that's the major thing that has happened, um, which is fantastic. That's what this project most needed. Uh, so um, she's going to be uh, helping pull things together. And then once we sort of have our initial plan in place and some things set up, then we'll I'll get back to you. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that at the beginning of the year. That'll be part of our... Um, five-year anniversary celebration in January when we next get back together as I'll talk a little bit more about that. So, um, anyway, um, there we go. It is going to be, uh, it is going to be cool. I, it, yeah, that's my hope, Cook of Wooten Miner, that it's going to be one of the best Tolkien resources made to date. Um, my vision for this webpage, right, the, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings webpage, um, web thing, publication thing, um, it's not going to be like containing the definitive answers. Um, but my hope is that we can come fairly close to asking every question that can be asked. That's my goal, right? My goal is not to have the definitive answers to everything because we're never going to have the definitive answers to everything. But I want to ask as many questions as we can. And so my, my goal for this is that someday... Like, you know, from now on, basically, after, once we start pulling this stuff together, anything that anybody wants to know, any question that anybody has ever again about the Lord of the Rings, um, that they can go to this page and, like, the question is there. Like, it's been asked and there are things that are being said about it and that people have thought about and talked about. Um, that's my hope. Uh, for this, and again, not, not, not definitive answers, not a definitive reading, um, but... Uh, uh, but a thorough look at the questions to be asked. Um, exactly, Sarah. Sarah said, but I just thought of a new one about Goldberry this week. Well, that's exactly the thing, right? That's exactly, that's exactly why one of the main things, one of the main reasons I want this site to exist, because um, it's not just going to be an archive. It will be in part an archive of things that we've said and discussed along the way, but it's going to be much more than that. Um, it's going to be a place where people can continue to ask more questions, right, and to uh, stimulate further discussion and collect other insights and answers to questions that we've already asked. Um, so anyway, 
yeah, that's why we're 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 kind of leaning in the direction of Wiki uh, to Juice Man for exactly that reason. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, that's kind of what. Anyway, so we'll tell you more about sort of the next steps and what's going to be happen what's going to be happening um, uh, when we uh, when we when we get a little bit further. But we should be there by January, I think, enough to kind of explain the next steps and what's going to happen. All right. It's uh, already late, and I've been transitioning to the field trip now for like 15 minutes. <laughs> so let's do uh, let's do a quick field trip uh, tonight. Uh, we'll probably mostly do a little bit of traveling. But uh, uh, thanks everybody for joining us, uh, and um, uh, for those of you who uh, cannot stay for the field trip, have a good uh, not only a good uh, evening and rest of the week, but a, a good remnant of the year and. Uh, um, uh, of uh, the rest of the month of December. How are you, Valori? I'm doing fine. But you're you're talking about like you know some some uh, some poetry can be you know physically painful to you at some point. And I have to say this is the worst time of year for that because this is the time of year where you get all of the night before Christmas parodies everywhere. Oh yes, true, true. Yes. Yeah. Um, where they just have no regard for the rhyme or the meter, and it's just right. That's ugh. very true. That's very, it's very true, and it's it's especially horrible because, of course, that poem itself has such a compelling meter that it's like you have oh, yeah. to you have to be really violent and aggressive in your disregard for the English language to butcher it as badly as so many people butcher it. You're right. Oh, I know. Yeah, and it's not even. It's not it, the the cross commercialization. Also, just takes like the, you know, the the beauty and the magic of the poem in the first place, and then oh turns my goodness, it into, yeah, yes, it was yeah. the night before Christmas, and all through the house, the Honda ship dealership was getting ready for our biggest Christmas sale ever, with only exactly. a mouse or something like that. They just tack something on the end. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's in its way though. It's almost, um, uh, it's almost fitting, right? That like, uh, at least like the horrible shape matches the horrible content, right? It's almost more jarring to hear a, uh, something which actually does flow very melodically while giving a really trite commercialistic, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, message. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, um, oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know about some of the T-shirt uh, recommendations this week, but I did make a tra la 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 land design, and uh, I have I was asked to submit it to use in the Sigmund store. So keep your eyes peeled on that one. Okay. Nice. Right for the uh, for our uh, for our our Elvish amusement park last time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Some something like uh, oh gosh I gotta scroll up, but it was like something from you know the amusement land across from the the. The uh, Holly Visitors, the Holly Tree Visitors Center, or something. Right, right, exactly, right, yeah, exactly, right. I didn't think uh, truck stop was a quite appropriate. But it's, <laughs> not quite. It's only metaphorically a truck stop, as they didn't have literal trucks. I think. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. Uh, so let's um, let's uh, let's head back to Ekaterinburg. I think I, we can we can milestone uh-huh. there. Um, again, I kept everybody super late, so we'll just have a we'll have a brief field trip tonight. Um, but the the goal of the field trip this evening um, will be <laughs> that's good. Two, two juice man says it's it's not a truck stop; it's a Wayne stop. 
I agree. Yeah, it's a it's a Wayne stop, which um, seems to invite really bad puns, actually. But um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, like uh, like it should be called something like the Wayner Shine or something like that. You know, um, if it has a car wash too. Uh, but anyway. Not that I would make any such puns. I'm just saying it seems to invite puns like that. Um, so let's head down. Now that, of course, it's in the middle of the night. In fact, it's just evening, so it'll be dark the whole time. So what we, my, the goal is to head down to Mirabelle and find the next milestone so that we can milestone straight to Mirabelle. We won't dis- discover all of Mirabelle um, uh, this time. But what I wanted to mostly do is look at, like, the routes to Mirabelle. We could go across country through Tralalalali land, um, which, by the way, is uh, uh, extremely difficult for me to say. And by the way, like that's I get the fact that I stutter on my L's makes the Tralalalali poem a, a very challenging one for me to yeah. say. No, I concur. Uh, I, I, yeah. I also grew up with a stutter as well. Yeah. I, uh, one of the big things is I mixed up R's and L's. Yeah, I didn't mix them up. I just couldn't get especially R's and L's, especially L's at the beginning of words out of my mouth. Like I just couldn't like I would just it would it would stick in my mouth. Um, I just couldn't say it. Uh, I would stutter over that every time. It was really bad. It was worst when I was like eight. Third grade, I remember being the nadir of my speech impediment when I was a kid. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Okay, so we could go overland through Chalalalali land, um, but that's, well, okay. What I want to primarily look at is the road. So let's follow this road south first. Okay. So, and see where, now I know it breaks up, so we kind of lose it. Um, and it, it devolves into a path, though it stays. And I remember when I was, uh, uh, when I was a, a, a wee young character adventuring in this land, I used to try to ride this road south and I'd lose it. And right here is where I'd lose it. It's kind yep. of gone and it kind of, uh, it kind of zags here, doesn't it? Kind of zag a little bit or it, we don't want anything to do with the dens of beasts yet because yeah, it's gone. There's no path. There's no road. Yeah. It's definitely overgrown and lost. We're just kind of gone. And, and yeah, I look at the map and we're now nowhere near where the road. So I get, there's another bit right here. Yeah, it kind of it kind of zagged over this way when we weren't able to see it, and, and now we come. Able, it might follow it. Right, maybe. Well, now we um, now we get to a crossroads. We're at that cross right. We're at that crossroads that we see. So this is a crossroad that leads to the Redhorn Pass, in that direction. Mm-hmm. And then, but it also continues south. But I don't think. Does this eastward-facing road, does it, does it dead end here? No, it does not. It continues on, mm-hmm. which it does not do on the map, but it appears to do so in real life. It's probably going to trail off again, as it yep. kind of and has. Yeah, we lost it. And it's gone. Are we headed towards Tralalalale land? I think we are. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think so. So if we just continue in this direction, we Stop. end up... At Tralalalali land, there it is. There it is. Okay, your elvish resort. For all, all of your giant bridge and water slides. There you go. Um, uh, there you go. All right. 
So, okay. So we did then presumably have a road. So you might not have made it all the way up uh, to, right. Come see the tiny elf statues. Exactly. Um, we didn't, um, you might not have made it all the way up. Um, Sad Umbroval. This is that, that's the, the, the den of the Corbine, right? This is like where the, where all the, yeah, the critters uh, sort of, live. Yeah, the critters have roped themselves off into neighborhoods out here. Yeah, <laughs> I said Corbine, combining the name of Crabine in uh, Middle Earth with uh, the Latin. Oh, for yeah, like Corvid, yeah. Corvid, yeah, for crow. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Um, Okay, so we're back to the crossroads here. So one leg of this cross, so one leg goes off to the, uh, so this is, I mean, I, I mean, like the layout, right? The marketing. So you come from, you know, uh, from Lothlorien over the Red Horn Pass, and there's a straight, you could just go straight to Tralalalali land uh, from there, huh? which is, which is cool. Or you could head up towards, um, you know, the, uh, the Wayne Stop and towards Gwingris, uh as well. Uh, but now continuing south, let's see where we go as we continue south. This is a much more well road, warm uh, road here. Yeah. Yeah, we got a, a much better surviving road, but the stones are still just like we saw uh, first by Gwingris, right? Just scattered stones with what looks like obvious patterning. If they were all there and newly laid, it probably would have been a nice grid or something close to it. Yet anyway, seen, see nicely, beautifully textured lines there. Um, mm-hmm. but no actual designs, no actual illustrations or anything. Um, okay. Uh, and then we, we're going to head down and the map suggests that we come to another intersection. Uh Oh, this is another place yeah. where I lose the road. Um, oh, weird it so looks like it, heads up this way, but it doesn't actually head up that way. I think it heads down this way, right? Where we've got the path down here. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, what was this? Do you think this is a new dead space or is it an old, like, this wasn't paved or something before, right? It's just... This looks like land that's been over, um, uh, like, like when you let cows go to pasture too often, the ground will start to look like this. Right. Yeah. Down. Maybe. Yeah, it could be a little... I wonder if it's recent. I wonder if there's some kind of... Like, it looks like a little um, desolation spot, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also, the the soil got noticeably red. It looks like a high acidity clay instead. Right, maybe. Maybe. Okay, and we got some more... We got some ruins to the right. Ooh, and a little palisade, which looks unfriendly. And yeah. That's then, new. <laughs> right, another... T- that is... What did I... That didn't used to be there? No, I mean, the palisade was definitely... Oh, comparatively <laughs> new. And less than 5,000 years old. I totally agree. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, totally agree. Right. Totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Glacier boulders up here. You know, I was going to save this whole part for later, but you know, we're already... Well, I guess we're kind of on the approach to Moria... Which I want to save until we get to the approach to Moria. Well, there's the lots books. to look at around here. No, there I think is. we still got a ways to go. We do, because okay, so now this brings us to yes, uh, where the 
uh, River Saranon was, which is, of course, a dry riverbed, as we would expect. Um, and our road now divides here, uh, going from uh, up the Saranon and down the Saranon. The Saranon as was, in any case. Um, okay, but so let's actually go up this way. Maybe we won't get all the way to Mirabelle this time. Um, because we can, I think we can go to this last elvish site, and then we won't go any further in. and Because that'll be the real approach to, uh, to Moria. But of course, there's no book relevance to the elvish ruin that we get up here, so we might as well start at this one and then work our way downstream, as it were, down bed, I suppose, is technically more accurate. Limlayer. Elfish dude looking out for somebody. Hmm? I have a vague memory of quests involving him. Ah, some Dunlinding shelters down there. Might be what he's checking he's out. He's searching for things, huh? Okay. Random doorway. How intriguing. And then this guy, right, this half-orc rider is a quest dude as well. As oh, yeah. I recall. It's, a, it's a build a pony quest. It's a build a pony quest, right. Okay, another intriguing doorway concerning which I am not thinking right now. Look at how scattered <laughs> these ruins are. That is really we'll interesting. So much to cover in January. There will be a lot to talk about in January down here. Okay. Um... Okay. Oh, that's just, that's honey's. Interesting. Okay. Whoa. Okay. That's interesting damage there. Yes, Kendall, exactly. We will get to Mirabelle where elves don't dwell uh, after. We'll do, we'll do this first. <laughs> up, to, up to and including, but not through the archway up here is where we'll go. Um, so okay, look at this. We get we get a double whammy. We get a stable master, and we also get a milestone in here somewhere, don't we? Yeah, right up here. Okay, there we are. So now we won't go back to the the Wayne stop. We'll we'll start here. Okay, so we'll start here and work our way out. But the the main observation from today is notice the. Uh, Notice the roads, right? Assuming the roads were laid by the elves, which I do assume they were, right? Um, what does that sort of suggest to us about, you know, the roads as we've observed them here? Um, and it's interesting to me because we get, we get, first of all, this clear road that heads up towards Moria. Um, we get a clear road, one of the strongest roads, which heads over to the Redhorn Pass. We get that main north-south road, roughly north-south, not in any kind of straight line or showing much interest in efficiency of travel, um, as one would expect from high elves wandering, sauntering through Eregion back in the day when they thought that evil had vanished from the world. Um, but So we have Mirabelle, which is their main city, where we, haven't, uh, where we have not been yet. Um, uh, so we have that main north-south road which ends at Gwingris on the one hand branches off to Rivendell as well 
um, branches off to the Redhorn Pass, branches off to the gates of Moria, to the Holland Gate, um, and of course, all roads cunningly and craftily converging at Tralalalali Land once the exhibit, uh, you know, once the resort was built. So that, and notice, like the highway over from Lothlorien goes straight to it. Like, you know, so as soon as you come into Holland uh, from, uh, from Lothlorien, you're right there, right? That's the strategic placement. Uh, it's not only near the Wayne stop, but it's like right there. So, you know, what do you want after a hard crossing of the Misty Mountains? Water Some pleasant time. Water slides. That's what you want, right? Clearly. Yep. That's what you want. And a scenic bridge. So, um, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. yes, the uh, Greenway is uh, uh, west of here, like off the map west. That is that is correct. That is correct. It, it's it a water side to a dry was... riverbed, but it wasn't yeah, dry it, then. It, it does imply that at this time, when this was most active, Rivendell was not the last homely house, was it? No. No. Um, uh, no, it wasn't. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, it was not. Um, it was the northern extension, you know, uh, in part. Anyway, not... I, I call an extension of Eregion is not quite accurate, but um, clearly sort of uh, uh, attached to it. But yeah, looking at the big map, JJ, we can see the dotted line, of course, is the Greenway, so we can see how far west it is. The entire Enidwife lies between um, uh, where we are now on the Eregion map. So we get to the left of the map off of which we cannot go um, would lead over towards the Enidwife. So actually, hang on a second. Let me just see click on the Ended Wife. Um, right, we can't go to the right off that, but we are pretty much parallel. Could we go roughly from um, either off to the western edge of this map or off the eastern edge of the Ended Wife map? We'd be pretty close. I mean, I, I know it connects to Eregion, um at the bottom, but they're not exactly north and south of each other. No. Um, so... Anyway, yes, I too would love to see the Minhiriath added to the map. Um, uh, I think I am not the only one who is bothered by the fact that you can't ride the Greenway all the way from Minas Tirith up to Bree uh, or yeah. up to Fornost. Like, is that asking too much? I don't think that's asking too much. Let's right? get to that blockade down there. It's been yeah, we have filled so many of the gaps in Lotro. I mean, and I, I, it's not that I'm complaining because I'm totally oh, not no. complaining because there's, you know, having added the whole Vale of Anduin right now, we can go up and down the Anduin all the way from Gundabad, you know, down to, uh, uh, to, you know, the, to the sea. So, Hey, like, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that we can do that. We've got all of Northern Mirkwood and the mountains up here. That's great. So mm-hmm. is it too much to ask? To fill in the well, one I'm gap happy left. When there's blank spots in the map. I'm happy when there's blank spots in the map. Well, there's more low to, to fill out. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, if they're all filled in, we have nothing left to do. Right. I mean, we do still get this whole area. I mean, the South Farthing, down Sarnford Way, right? And, um, you know, all the, oh, you know, all this area down here for Linden, right? And, uh, 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 you know, Harlinden and Forlinden. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that we could do here. Um, but, um, 
but yeah, uh, uh, Tomas is saying that he'd rather see Dorwinian first, and I can I can understand that. Um, Dorwinian being over here by the Sea of Rune. Um, yep, yep. I think that would be uh, that'll be pretty cool too. Not to mention Condon Harad. Uh, I, I I look forward to that. Um, but um, but yes, the one hole in the middle of the area door map is still a bit of a vexation. I have to admit. But anyway, cool. All right. Yeah. Um, thanks everybody for joining us. We made it to a place today, which was that, that'll do. That'll do. That'll do. All right. Thanks everybody. So as I say, we will be back, uh, not for a few weeks. We'll be back in early January. Uh, unfortunately not until then, but I will see you guys for exploring the world. I will be back for nature of middle earth this uh, tomorrow and next week, but for exploring the, uh, exploring the water of the rings, we will, uh, uh, we will not be back until January 4th. So I'll see you guys then for episode 212. Uh, thanks very Bye much guys. everybody. Bye now. Bye.